Hello, and welcome to the Logistics Podcast. I'm your host, James Berman, editor of SHD Logistics. Thanks for joining us. This week marks the launch of SHD Logistics' latest publication, The Logistics Report. In this special episode, we hear more of the interview between myself and Dr. Nicholas Head, environmental and sustainability lead at XPO Logistics, as featured in this month's report, which focuses on sustainability. It was a pleasure to speak to Nick, and the timing was great. Relatively new to his role, Nick has a fresh and positive outlook on the environmental initiatives that a major 3PR like XPO Logistics is adopting. Good afternoon, Nick. Hi, James. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Your job title lends itself incredibly well to this report, so I'm keen to get your thoughts on the subject. Just before we start, giving you a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah. So I've worked in the environmental sector for around about 13 years, including doing my PhD at Northampton University on circular economy. Did that between 11 and 15. And then after that, I went into the consultancy sector and worked for a number of different consultancies in Bristol and Oxford and other places. Then did quite a lot of freelance work in the environmental sector. And then after that, I moved into FMCG and worked in head of sustainability roles. I guess the key word that's going to probably be used a lot today is sustainability. I guess first and foremost, would you be able to define what sustainability means to you? From my perspective, it's about having a very robust business model, but also within that business model, having the flexibility to be able to adapt to the change in circumstances, particularly the need for environment protection and managing resources is a key element to it. Circular economy is looking at opportunities for circularity within the business model itself, and then looking at the how you can use those materials that move through the system, and also trying to reduce down and put a cap on the emissions that we produce and pollutants that go into the atmosphere. And if you can get into that, then you're onto a winning model in terms of the ever-changing environment. And by doing so, you are not impeding the current generations or those to come. And I would give some examples on that. If you look at things that we've done in the past on SO2 reductions, historically, and the success was from that in terms of reducing the impacts of acid rain from the 1980s in particular. But you look at things now like the modularization of nuclear energy and getting towards zero emission energy production. That's a significant factor for me in terms of sustainability. And then things like carbon capture and storage, which are potential for offsetting the emissions, especially with the debate around CO2 reductions at the moment. I know that you've only been with XPO for a short time, am I right? Yep. You might be able to come at this with a fresh set of eyes. I'm sure there's historical reasons, but I wanted to know where does XPO's drive to be sustainable? Your customers, end consumers specifically, I know that you, you work with a lot of people, but retailers is obviously a big one in that sphere. Public, government or internal forces, where does that drive come from? So I think without a doubt, it's a combination. And if that can come all the way down from the board level at the global level and then down to the business areas in terms of the UK, Europe and in North America, but also filters all the way down through the system in terms of our replying to our client demands plus the customer demands that's coming through there, our engagement with our colleagues and the, the interaction we have on that piece and the information that they feed back to us in terms of their concerns about the environment and the sustainability piece. So from that perspective, I think it is a broad brush but you do need that element of top-down. And then we haven't had an issue with that so far with my time at XPO, which is reassuring. And then from that perspective, getting out there and speaking to as many of the clients as we possibly can and the customers, and then also speaking to our internal colleagues and, and seeing what the feeling is from that perspective and engaging with that, and then filtering that back up into the senior levels and having that interaction, iterative process that happens there. I think that's been a quite a breath of fresh air really in terms of how it's been done. Is there anything that any of your clients have said to you 
sort of sparked thought and led to a line of thinking that you might not have otherwise had insight into. Some of our clients are very far down the road, shall we say, in terms of sustainability. And some of them are just starting on that journey. And what we tend to see is a lot of them really trying to look at the technology space. But some people don't quite understand where that needs to go. Some of our clients are really driving that agenda forward. Things like EV vehicles and what have you. And last mile, there was a significant development on the sustainability piece. So we are learning quite a lot from our clients as well, as well as guiding our clients. So we do get that whole piece where we're learning at the same time as them. But then we can deal with other clients that are relatively new to that journey, which they're quite happy to be moulded in that space. So that happens too. You mentioned the environmental pressures, which is absolutely a part of sustainability, although there are other elements to it. Environmental initiatives specifically, do you think public pressures such as the ones drummed up by COP26, there's a lot of other angles that comes from, but COP26 was certainly the one that dominated the mainstream. Do you think any of those public pressures will have a lasting impact on businesses in the UK, or do you think it was sort of a flash in the pan? I think the key takeaway from COP26 was it raised the awareness back into the public eye. Yeah, I think that was the key thing. We can get into the debate about the whole substance and all the rest of it, but I think that was the key message that came from it. And I think the most interesting piece that came for me was around the call for action and the impetus that that built up around the debate in the public space. So I think that was quite uh, interesting and slightly different from the other ones that's come before. So I'm sure you've been monitoring cops all the years yourself and they haven't really achieved as much as they would like to have achieved, shall we say. But then you had the policy focus around cash, coal, cars and trees and then back that up with the 10-point plan from the Green Industrial Revolution policy that came out quite recently. That's really allowing now the businesses to try and embed the things that are coming from the government side of it and from the public space. So, for example, Road Freight now understands that no new diesel policies are definitely going to be moving forwards. So we also know that in terms of our vans, rigids and our arctics, that we have a bit of a steer now on when they're going to come in and what timeframes we have to respond to that. So that's quite reassuring. And then also that allows for the OEMs to get into that space as well and start taking some real action in that area. So if you think about things like the EV space and hydrogen, those are moving forward significantly or can move forward significantly. Now we've got some real policy steer on that. So that's quite an interesting development. So the impact from COP26 in that respect would be quite positive. But I think from a shaping policy perspective, as opposed to any of the wider elements to it. So I'd like to get into the, the, I think probably why I really wanted to talk to you today, Nick, was the meat of XBO's actions. Yep. Fairly open-ended question, but what sustainability initiatives is XBO currently undertaking? So I would probably sum it up in terms of three elements. So efficiencies, as you would expect, as most people doing that in the, in the sector, optimization and innovation. So I'll give you some examples on the efficiency side of it. We're obviously doing the piece on, on driver training. We're getting back into that space again now that the COVID or was restrictions were lifting off there. So we're getting back into the SAFID training, that kind of thing, looking at driving the performance and then pushing up the MPG from our different clients. Obviously across our range of clients, we have anything from really full loads to relatively light loads. So there's a difference in that space anyway. So we push on that. We're also looking at things like the fleet replacement program that we have in terms of the rolling element to that. Moving forward to having all Euro 6 as our aspiration. We're very close to that at the moment, but we're moving forward there all the time within our leasing framework that we have in place for that. But then around things like planning for payloads, that kind of work that we do in that space, applying the technology we've already got in place for there, and then trying to maximize that and then utilize our, our own network, shared use network that we have. We're quite fortunate in that respect to have that network in the UK 
where we have our own strategic sites. So we make as much use of that as we possibly can from the payload and from a utilization perspective. But then looking into that further, we're trying to look at the tires, the aerodynamics, and the, the large casted trailers, as you would expect. But also the fleet maintenance piece. If we're moving into an EV space over a longer period of time, then that will obviously change as well, because the less moving parts with the EV would ideally lead to a less maintenance. So there will be a saving element come from that as well over time. But then looking at multimodal options, we're getting into the rail space. We've just done the piece in Ireland quite recently, the joint venture there on the moving from the West Coast to Dublin. And I think it was around about, I don't have the figures to hand, but it was, it was a significant amount of journeys that would be moved onto the rail from that side of it. But then also we're doing the rail project in Paris, where we moved along the river. So it was a drop-off point just outside of Paris and then it's moved along the Seine to the key places there for local distribution. So we're getting into that space as much as we can and then trying to utilise the networks that's in the UK at the moment. Some of our strategic sites are quite close to some of the, the rail hubs in particular. So we can potentially move from anywhere from the southeast to through the Midlands to Scotland and southwest by utilising that. So we're looking at that all the time in terms of what we can do there. And then even looking as far as if these are things we can do in the airspace, air freight space as well, because you've got the just-in-time part to, to come with that as well. So we're also looking at that too. And then from an optimization point of view, we're always looking at options for, for backloading. We have our own internal technology on that piece as well that looks at that. And then our subcontractors can get into that space as well. And then we're starting to explore the space around load sharing as well which is something that is quite challenging, but it's a, it's a relatively new space. I mentioned before, I have the DigiHub for our clients plus our um, subcontractors to, to get into there and utilize that. And that's really trying to drive down the empty mileage within the system itself and have that as a pushing on that. And then load consolidation space from the optimization point of view within our network sites. So we do a huge amount of work on our LTL operations within that. And then in the innovation space, we're looking significantly into alternative fuels, as you would expect. We were looking heavily into LNG, but then changes in the market price have made a, an impact on that, but it's still a space that we're, we're heavily into. Um, and now we're looking into other alternatives such as uh, HVO. So there are some trials in place at the moment for that. And then moving forward, it's looking very optimistic from that side. The challenge on that side of it is from a, a governmental point of view in terms of the lack of support in that area is a bit of a concern. If we could get some guidance from government on that, that there will be like an interim piece before we move to hydrogen and EV. That would be quite a reassuring thing from a government perspective. But I think that's something that the sector needs to get together as a whole to try and have some lobbying piece in, in there. And perhaps people like yourself to get involved in that space too. And then looking into the EV pilots that we're doing as well at the moment. We're doing that internally ourselves, but also with some of our clients. So we're moving down that from the last mile point of view, particularly the van side of things is probably the easier side of that to, to win on. But also you have the, the policy is looking at 2030 for that element. So that's a, a much shorter time frame to get into there and an easier technical challenge, shall we say, on the van space. So that's something that we're looking at in a big way. Uh, and then we're looking at the collaboration space for university research clusters as well uh, and having some support from them in terms of potentially on the actual R&D side of things that we can do ourselves or in terms of the validation piece that they can give us as well from that side of it. So I think my first question off the back of that was about EV. EV been around quite a while and it had a something of a renaissance a couple of years ago, Tesla, etc. Yeah. in the public sphere. I said probably one of the most common things in the public sphere that people comment on about EVs is things like range anxiety and the infrastructure. 
for a logistics business, the infrastructure issues, is that something that, that sort of is mirrored with the public sphere or do you have your own way of countering that? I think it's a genuine concern, to be fair, uh, especially from a, a haulage point of view. There's been a huge amount of movement in this area on the car side of things. And I think that infrastructure is coming into play, particularly in places like London. I was actually on a briefing yesterday with TfL and they were showing how much the progress they'd, they'd made on that. So that's a significant move. But then again, that's also a drawback because one third of all the charging capacity is actually in London, which is, you know, is obvious in terms of what it suggests for the rest of the country. And that's only in the car space. So looking at how we can roll that into, let's start with vans, for example. Can we, can we do that with this already capacity that's there in terms of charging capacity? Is it going to be enough? Is there an option to move into the space where councils are already looking into that from their fleets? Can the shared charging at their kind of depots, will that work? Is that an option to move that forward? One of the other suggestions that I've heard quite recently is about bus depots um, and moving trucks into there when you can get to the point where you can do truck charging. Again, that's quite a limited capacity at the moment, I would say, but at least there's things that have been looked at from that perspective as well. So there is that whole piece between the private sector and the public sector in terms of how they can collaborate and move that forward. So that's, that is quite an interesting area from there. The public's perception, I would say, is still around. It's a relatively easy thing to do because the cars, they can see the cars all the time. When you're trying to do it from a technical point of view for, for anything above a van, is a much more challenging piece. Um, there are quite a few things that have been looked at from a, a testing point of view, shall we say, certainly from a rigid point of view, up to 26 tonnes. But from a HGV, a large HGV point of view, it's probably much more challenging at this time. That'll change. It'll change all the sure. time, I would imagine. And I think that's probably the direction that at least a certain element of the, the market will go into. It probably lends itself more to things like very localised deliveries, things like running around to... What's the, what's the terminology from nowadays? Dustbin carts? Oh, yeah. yeah. Refuge vehicles, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing, moving those around. So it probably lends itself to that kind of space. For the trunking element, we might have to need to look at other things apart from the EV, or maybe EV plus, mm-hmm. shall we say. So the top up that happens with the hydrogen within the system from there. But from a charging point of view, that's a way away, shall we say, from an industry perspective and sector perspective. So it's something that we, as a sector, need to get into. There are some interesting opportunities that have been raised from just from a conceptual point of view in terms of sharing the ownership of the actual charging and developing that it's still a work in progress shall we say but yeah from a perception point of view i think public perceive it's been a relatively short step but it's from a, a logistics point of view and a, and a business point of view it's a bigger step than, yeah. than what people appreciate i think naturally uh, but it sounds like you have some confidence in the long run yeah i think over the longer term i think it's look, looking optimistic mm-hmm. i think there still are challenges in terms of what we can do from the, the heavier haulage side of things and the, the trunking perspective. So I think that would be where our concern would lie. But again, it's an R&D piece and we can see things that are happening that might be translatable or it might take us in a different direction altogether. So yeah. I think when you start talking about things like energy, etc., that seems quite daunting to a small logistics business. That's possibly something that's not even on, on their radar. But in my opinion, it's something that should be on, on all, business, all businesses' radar. What advice would you give to a smaller logistics business? And we'll come on a little bit more about what businesses can do in a minute. But what advice would you give specifically to a smaller logistics business about how they can get started on those big topics? They're mostly going to be located in places where there's other clusters of operations, Mm -hmm. some kind of industrial estate or something like that. So that might be a good place for them to start. See what's happening on that cluster. See if this thing's happening from a renewables point of view or whatever that's happening locally. Is there something happening there? Are there some of the other players that's, that's close by? Can they have a conversation with them? 
and see if there's a, a piece there. It could be a shared investment piece on renewables or battery storage, that kind of stuff potentially for them. And then look at where they are from a leasing point of view in terms of their fleets mm-hmm. and, and what that would entail over a short period of time. You know, is there options within that to bring in new things? Is there options to buddy up with some of the larger operators in the area to do that kind of thing as well? So I think the preconception is that within business, making sustainability efforts is driven from the top down. While that might often be correct, do you think this is an effective perspective? If not, what can those in less senior positions do to make a difference? We do pride ourselves learning from our stakeholders. That's a key thing in what I've found already in the short period of time I've been at Brexpeel. There is that interaction that's happening all the time from we have town hall meetings with the board of directors, from the CEO down, we have all that kind of conversation, and they're live. So you're asking questions all the time. So that happens all the time. And within that piece, sustainability comes up a lot. And none of the chairman or anything like that shy away from it. They'll have that conversation, very open. We've actually changed that ethos within the company to do that as well. So sustainability actually is linked how the remuneration happens within XPO. So that is obviously a top-down element to it, but it also pushes them down to being more engaging within the, the different levels of the organization. And we have very open discussions from all the levels of the business in terms of What's happening at a local level? Is there an issue on the local site? Is there an issue around pollinators, for example? Is there something with a water course nearby? Is there voluntary actions that people want to get into? And we'll always support on that. But then we'll try and feed that back into the business and say, this is what we did. This is how we can interact with it. This is how we can learn from it and things that we can do from a business point of view as well. You know, And then also have that conversation with our clients and, and take it through. So we do tend to have that open forum approach for all the different levels. So I, I think that you do get, in that kind of open forum, you do get a, a lot more of that feedback going into the senior management as well. So it's not that top-down looking at it and saying, this has to be imposed, mm-hmm. because that can, that can be counterproductive. So I think that we do have a very open approach in terms of that. You know, I think that does reflect in terms of how we are putting our strategy together to move forward from that. You've got experience specifically in this area because it's rare that the job title specifically focus on it, which is really progressive and great. Um, usually, I think people whose job it is to think about these things is someone else in the business. From your experience, do you see any trends that are, people aren't talking about in sustainability? I'm keen to sort of get the inside scoop. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure it's a trend that's not being talked about. There is a dynamic going on at the moment about tunnel vision, about CO2 emissions. Mm-hmm. It's becoming the whole debate. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's an awful lot of other issues that should be in the spotlight as well. And I think people probably need to broaden out that perspective to take in those other issues as well, because they can be just as important to CO2. And then obviously, if you're talking about CO2 emissions per se, you're not talking about the other emissions and other factors that can impact the environment as well. Just from a logical point of view, it needs to broaden out from there, as it used to be. I think CO2 is also useful in terms of it, it can be something people can latch onto and they can understand mm-hmm. and communicate quite well. So that can be quite useful from even a reporting point of view within internally or to the clients and that kind of stuff. So it's something that they can see directly. So I don't think it's a per se an issue that's not being talked about. I think it's more a case of people are tending to narrow down their gaze and maybe they should just broaden out their gaze a bit more, be a bit more perceptive to, to other elements that's there. No, I completely agree. And I think a lot of people are guilty of it. And that was going to be my next question, but that's fantastic that you answered that. Now I'd like to push back to you. What benefits have you seen implementing a lot of the initiatives that we've talked about today? No, I don't agree as a tick box. No, I think there's, I think there really is a value added piece to it there in terms of what we can bring to it. And I think 
making that case within the organization is critical from a business perspective. It's not just about saying like, we have to do sustainability for sustainability's sake. There needs to be an added value piece there, whether that's a cost avoidance area or you know a revenue space that we can potentially get into from a circularity point of view. So making that business case is obviously critical within that. There is a compliance piece that, that sits there, obviously, that you have to look at. If we're talking about the wider ESG agenda as well, that's obviously a big part of that. But certainly from a sustainability and getting that trust to the business side of things, it is making that business case and making it in the right way. But what I've found is that people are very engaged from that point of view in the business and they want to do that. They'll obviously look at it from a perspective of, is there a cost avoidance piece that we can do from there? Is there some kind of revenue potential we can have there, which you would expect from business side of things? So you'll always get that. But if you, you are framing it around circularity or anything in that area, you have to look at the revenue and cost avoidance options as well. I want to thank Nick for his time and wish him the best of luck as he continues to drive key initiatives at XBO. To read more about the topics discussed in this podcast, head to shdlogistics.com and jump into the logistics report. That's all from me. Thanks for listening and see you soon.